Well, he is Greek-American. He's a New Yorker. It's a great American success story. He's involved in a number of businesses. He's a great role model. He's got plenty of ideas on how to bring change. Enlist the support of business leaders, elected officials. Katz and Matitas rub shoulders with some of the most powerful people in the world. Great American, a great New Yorker. Now that's John Katz a native New Yorker. Mixing common sense thinking with New York sensibility. He's John Katz owner of 77 WABC. And this is the Cats Roundtable on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Everywhere around the world, they come into America. Good morning, New York. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katz here Sunday morning. We have one great show for you today. We have Governor David Patterson. We have Congressman Peter King. And what's going on with politics in New Jersey? What's going on politics in Connecticut? We have Mr. Hugan, the chairman of New Jersey, and Mr. Proto, the chairman of Connecticut. We'll find out. And most of all, we have the governor of the state of New York, Governor Hochul, at approximately 845, at some revelations and some good news. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And let's start with my friend Michael Stoller talking about New York real estate. Good morning. This is Michael Stoller for the Stoller Real Estate Report on the Katsimatidis Roundtable. This morning, I have the opportunity of having Mr. Brooklyn, the man involved with most of the investment sales and the entire development scheme in Brooklyn, Ofa Cohn, who is the president and founder of Terra CRG. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me, Michael. Tell me how you look at it. You know, as you've been on my TV shows and we've discussed the the crystal ball at the end of the show Mm -hmm. or at the beginning of the show, how do you look at the crystal ball when you recently came out with a, on a, a press release that investment sales are down in Brooklyn. What's what's happening? So, I mean, I think you have to look at the Brooklyn market. You have to look at the, historically what has happened, right? So when we started tracking this market in 2010, there was $1 billion worth of investment sales transactions. Investment sales, for those of you who don't know, includes apartment buildings, retail buildings, industrial buildings, development sites, land. That market in 2010 was just coming out of the recession. It was a billion dollars worth of transactions. In uh, 2015, it peaked with almost 10 billion. And then it was kind of hovering between six and seven billion for a few years. During the pandemic, which was obviously a down year in terms of transactions, it was $4 billion. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because while volume tends to go down in challenging economic times or challenging times in general, the average transaction in Brooklyn and the, the, the value of, of real estate in general quadrupled during this period, right, in that decade between 2010 and 2020. So in 2022, however, uh, we, we had a record year again in Brooklyn, $10 billion worth of transactions tenfold from 12 years earlier. Do you give this the pent-up demand? Yeah, so there was definitely pent-up demand and was the tail end of a low interest rate environment. The, the last two quarters of 2022, you know, there was still closing of transactions that were originated at the be- beginning of that year. Tremendous amount of capital that was sitting on the, t- on the sidelines in, in 2022 kind of jumped in in 2021 and 2022. There was also, you know, the expiration of the 421A program that people rushed to acquire residential, uh, residential zone land towards the end of 2022 to take advantage of the last day of that program. That program sunset was June 15 of 2022, about a year ago. So that was another reason for that peak. But, you know, as as you may know, the first quarter of uh, 2023, there was significant decline, almost 70% decline in volume. Across the board, right? Across the board, all asset, all all asset types. And, and, And we attribute that mostly 
to the interest rate environment that, that changed so, so rapidly over the last nine months. Okay, you've recently been involved with this project on Atlantic Avenue. Tell me a bit, a little bit about it. Yeah, I mean, we assembled the site, started uh, 2018, 2019, assembled uh, a very large site on Atlantic Avenue between Franklin and Classon Avenue, and went through the public process to rezone it from industrially uh, zoned land M11, a higher density residential project with a, a significant portion of the apartments, mandatory inclusionary housing, which is affordable, a permanently affordable apartment. So this is a project with 30% of the apartments are affordable. So 137 apartments are affordable. That that project alone doubles the amount of affordable housing units that was created in this neighborhood for over a decade. That's great. One project. Let's talk about you know what's happening in Williamsburg. I remember being at the groundbreaking in like 2006 for one of the first developments, major developments. Today we have Hermes. Yeah. Williamsburg, <laughs> Williamsburg uh, has really gone uh, through a tr- tremendous transformation over the last, at this point, almost two decades. You know, while the residential development side of Williamsburg is sort of like fully developed, like the waterfront is fully developed, there's a couple of new projects that are coming uh, that our friends at Two Trees are developing, the Domino Sugar Factory, that whole mini neighborhood on the southern side of uh, the Williamsburg Bridge and one more project. But for the most part, the residential is already developed. And what we're seeing, like you're saying, we're seeing retail completely transforming. So uh, Madison Avenue retailers are coming to the area around Bedford, Bedford Avenue in Williamsburg. So Gucci and Hermes and, and some of these other tenants. And, and if you walk there during you know, the week and during the weekends, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, the retail is doing really, really well. Is Brooklyn becoming the gym capital of the city of New York <laughs> with the Lifetime Fitness and now uh, the Chelsea Piers? Yeah, I mean, so it, it's true. So, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, I, would, I would categorize it as, you know, Brooklyn, the demographic in Brooklyn is changing and there is significantly more need for amenities and especially with hybrid modes of work where people might not spend their time commuting and they they work more either at their apartments or close to where they where they live you know so Chelsea Piers just opened last week a, a brand new facility in Prospect Heights it actually is across the street from our office I think it's around 80,000 square feet it's beautiful uh, it's already very very busy but that just in context I mean this is just showing you the depth uh, of how active and how populous Brooklyn is as its own city, right? It's over two and a half million people. It has its own vibrancy. It has its own economy. It has its own energy. And look at, you know, I, I go to um, Wagman Supermarket in the Brooklyn Navy Yards and, and you, any any day of the week, any time of the day, the parking lot is completely full. What Brooklyn. about the office market? So the office market in Brooklyn has always been a, a small and medium-sized tenant market. And we're continuing to see that even coming out of COVID. So the that market of the, you know, smaller uh, 25 to 100 employee companies are continuing to be in Brooklyn, continuing to sign leases, and also f- different forms of not just office, but hybrids of office and manufacturing, like we're seeing in Industry City and the Brooklyn NVR. These are two industrial complexes that are, are doing really, really well. And it, it shows that the strength and the advantage of those combinations of manufacturing and office for Brooklyn. So Brooklyn doesn't have the availability of older stock class B office buildings that 
we've seen in Manhattan, and there's 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 only a handful of, of brand new office buildings that are still seeking large tenants. But for the most part, there's it's not such a terrible office market. So as I said a little while ago, I think my apple is very shiny and clear for Brooklyn. Okay, we may have had a burp based on the interest rates and some other things, but I think Brooklyn's going to continue. There are going to be development sites. You had mentioned that you're doing one with ExxonMobil. So there's definitely there. And the king of Brooklyn and my friend over here, Ofa Cohen, thanks for being here today. Thank you, Michael. With us today is Governor David Patterson, and he has a lot of knowledge of what the heck is going on in New York City, New York State, and on the national uh, community. Governor Patterson, welcome to Sunday morning. What would you like to start at this morning? Well, uh, thank you, John. I hope that you and uh, everyone listening had a happy July 4th weekend. This was a great July 4th weekend because July 4th falling on a Tuesday enabled a lot of people to start the holiday on Friday and go all the way to Wednesday before they went back to work. But what's interesting about July 4th that a lot of people know is that the Declaration of Independence was actually signed on July 3rd, 1776. And then the year later, when they were, uh, the Continental Congress was doing something and they were real busy, and somebody uh, realized uh, late in the day, a year later, that they had never celebrated the event of signing the Declaration the year before. So they celebrated it on July 4th, 1777. And we've celebrated it on July 4th, every day since. So now that we're done with that, I understand that well, you had... So the real date is July 3rd. And like the first capital of the United States was in New York City in Manhattan, Federal Hall. Exactly, exactly. There's so much about that period, about not just the politics, but the military strategies and the different relationships between the different states that were uh, founded. And then, of course... Uh, you know, England supervising everything until the Americans got tired of it. It's wonderful history. But uh, you had a conversation with Governor Hochul this week, and you shared it, I believe, Thursday night on uh, the uh, five o'clock show. And it really point it really pointed out to me, and I think everyone needs to know this, that this governor, Kathy Hochul, is in an unenviable place. She is the only governor who has now served her whole time with a legislature that has more than two to one majorities in the Senate and the Assembly. The reason that's important is because if Governor Hochul vetoes a bill, they can come up with enough vote to override her veto. So this has given the legislative leaders far more authority and power than they've had in the past. And so I remember in 2003, the first year I was minority leader, we overrode one of Governor Pataki's vetoes, and both the uh, Senate and Assembly, we, we did them almost unanimously. But for the most part, governors have not had to deal with that problem. I never had that problem when I was there. And it's a very difficult position because everyone holds you, being the governor, responsible for everything that goes on, but your capacity the capacity to influence the situation is reduced from the from uh, times before. So I think that <clears throat> she's gotten some criticism from people at times who really don't know that she doesn't have the uh, unilateral discretion that others of us had when we served. 
and she made it very clear that the legislature, state senate, and the assembly have a thumb over her, and she's trying to work it out. But what I think she did say is on the bail reform, they are stubborn. They don't want to do anything more. It's just very sad because there's a mass exodus out of New York, and I guess we did talk about that the budget for the last 12 months is down like 20%. So at some point, does that mean the budget blows up? Well, there's a 13.3 projected budget deficit that would have to be closed And the best time to start closing it would be now. In other words, I mean, I don't want to get to governor. No, listen, I care for her. I think she's a good governor. I think she's trying very hard. I think, right. But she's got a thumb over her. Well, in my first year, we had a similar on, this was 2008. This is when everything fell apart. And I demanded that the legislature come back uh, in the summer. And they did come back and they cut $2 billion off of a $4 billion out year budget gap. But I had a lot of weapons to deal with them in case they didn't do that, that she doesn't have. So in other words, she could invite them back this summer. And uh, other than if it's a barbecue, I don't think it's likely that they're coming. But everyone needs to understand that your responsibility is to your district, the people that live there, but also to all of the people of the state of New York. And at a certain point, we've got to understand the pandemic taught us one thing that we should all remember. People don't have to live in the same place. They can move and work from Florida, California, North Carolina, got a lot of New Yorkers down there. In the state of Georgia, they have a Hempstead Day where all the people from Hempstead, Long Island, the village that I grew up in, they have a big uh, event to commemorate that they all lived in Hempstead. This is John Katzman-Tedes. If you want to hear the full interview, go to wabcradio.com. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. You're a great American. You're a classic example of the people who built this country. He's got plenty of ideas on how to bring change. Great American, a great New Yorker. This is the Cats Roundtable on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's John Katsimatidis. With us today is former Congressman Peter King to give us an update. What's going on in our city, our state, our country? It's Sunday morning, Congressman King. There's so many problems. Where do you want to start? John, I would say mainly uh, the disappointment I have in the city that, uh, you know, crime maybe is down from last year, but last year was a record year. Uh, compared to previous years of 2018, 2019, crime is really out of control. We saw it last week over the uh, 4th of July weekend where there were so many shootings and uh, so many people injured, two people killed. And uh, again, I'm, I'm disappointed. I was expecting more from Eric Adams by this time. I felt as a uh, former a police officer, he was actually a captain in the police department, and he had made crime, fighting crime, a major issue in his campaign. And also, you know, to put it bluntly, the fact that he's African-American, I thought he would be uniquely positioned, you know, to bridge the gap between the minority communities and the police department so they could all work together to combat crime. But we really haven't gotten the results that I think we should. And when he's questioned, he too often you know, falls back on the race card, which, uh, again, I, I like Eric Adams. I, I consider him, you know, I have a good relationship with him. And I really am not into personal attacks. And I, I hope that he can turn this around. But it's really time to get serious. And the fact that his previous police commissioner, Keyshawn Sewell, I thought was extremely qualified, 
I knew her from her days in Nassau County. But apart from that, I mean, when I talked to the rank-and-file cops and a number of the veteran cops at one police plaza, they tell me she was doing, she wanted to do an outstanding job. She had a lot of ideas, but her hands were being tied by, by City Hall. So to lose a top police commissioner at a time when we're not winning the war against crime, to me, it's, uh, it, it's very disappointing. It's discouraging. There's still time for him to turn it around because good people want, want Eric Adams to succeed as mayor. But right now, it just doesn't seem to be happening. And uh, so I'm really uh, calling on him uh, to, uh, you know, unite the people of the city. John, I don't know how many times you've said it. Uh, there's uh, 8 million people, 8.5 million people in New York. There's another probably 3 or 4 million people at least in the surrounding metropolitan areas. It's twelve over 12 million people. And out of that, maybe two or 3,000 at most are committing 95% of the crimes. That's, you know, we know where the crime is coming from. If we could just get united as, as a people, we can get some sense out of the state legislature, let the cops do their job. And now we hear the city council passing legislation, which is going to require cops to be filling out forms every time they look at somebody, for God's sake. So it's just uh, uh, they're going to be tied down in paperwork. And it's going to do two things. One is going to uh, keep cops from doing their job. And second, a lot of cops are going to say, it's not worth it. If every time I speak to someone, I have to fill out a long form and explain why I did it and who I spoke to and how long it went on for, it's just make, it's, it's going to make the cop a perpetual bookkeeper rather than a law enforcement officer. So uh, that's really my concern right now, John, is, I mean, are people really, are, are tourists really going to come back to the extent we need them? Is the office space going to be filled in New York the way it was before COVID? It's hard enough bringing people back now that they got used to working at home. But when they see the crime, when they see what's happening on the subways, when they see what's happening in the streets, and then you have the, the surge of, of you know, illegal migrants coming in, in into New York. And listen, all of us want to helpful. We want to help people. We want to, uh, uh, you know, you and I, or actually you are an immigrant. I'm a, a grandson of immigrants. I grew up in an immigrant community. Immigrants are the lifeblood of New York. But it has to be done in a legal way. Right now we have over 50,000 have come in and are trying to find uh, housing for them, putting them in hotels, right, right, located right in Midtown where we're trying to get business to expand. Uh, talking about putting them in uh, uh, school, school buildings in Staten Island and other locations, Brooklyn, Queens. Uh, it's, the situation is just getting, seems to be getting going from bad to worse each day. And it's really time for the mayor well, to get serious. Uh, Congressman, I spoke to Governor Hoko a few days ago, and the fact is she feels she's getting her hands tied by the state Senate and the state assembly, and she really wants more reforms on the bail act and to keep people safer. I mean, all that, and what I said to her is this November, there's 51 city council seats out of 51 that are becoming eligible. And now we're going to work hard to have common sense in New York City. And she encouraged me to work hard to have more common sense in New York City in those 51 city council seats. Well, John, there's an opportunity where the mayor and the governor, if they spoke out together and worked together to elect the, uh, you know, the people who are going to be tougher on crime, not even tougher, uh, which I'm all for, but being reasonable uh, to get away from some of these uh, terrible so-called reforms in the last few years, which have tied the hands of the police, put bad people back on the street, and uh, just uh, not, not providing any of the mental health care that's needed, but also not, not providing the, uh, you know, the bail reform that we do need. The bail reform we need right now is to not be letting uh, violent criminals out or people who uh, have had 25, 30 uh, crimes or offenses on, 
on their rap sheet and 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 they're let out without any uh without having to post any bail at all so this is an opportunity that's for the governor and the mayor to come together and uh speak which right now i think the legislature is taking power away from the governor both the assembly and the senate the city council is trying to take power away from the mayor and they get for their own survival and for the survival of new york city and new york state the mayor and the governor should basically form an alliance and get out there and not worry about the partisanship of the the politics get out there and uh, really denounce and go after those who are not doing their job who are not supporting the police and support candidates that are Congressman, that God is giving us another chance to have common sense in our city by having this election of 51 out of 51 seats. And if we can get some common sense going in our city, maybe the state assembly and the state senate will come to their senses and say, whoa, let's be afraid that the people are revolting against the socialism. I mean, look what's happening to Anheuser-Busch stock. It's went down $27 billion. Because of what Ben and Jerry's is doing, Unilever stock is down two and a half billion. So maybe when common sense Americans revolt, maybe the message will get out because right now, common sense Democrats are so scared that the socialists will go after them. No, they are. And, they sh- and they, I, it should be the socialists who are scared that the common sense people are going to go after them. And I agree. I think Anheuser-Busch could be a model to use how uh, people that down deep people want to do the right thing. They want to get away from this woke culture that's out there. They want to stand up to it, and they want to uh, really get common sense results. So, again, if the governor and the mayor can work together to bring that about, that would be fine. But also, you know, people, you know, all of us want people to do the right thing because it's the right thing. But if they do the right thing because of fear, that's good, too. If they're afraid of losing their job. If they're afraid of not being reelected. And that, if, and that causes them to do the right thing, fine. I'll, 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 I'll take that. Uh, even, you know, the threat of people running. I mean, uh, Hank Schreinkopf was one of the leading political analysts in New York City. He has a column this week where he's saying that uh, Keyshawn Sewell might make a good candidate for mayor, the former police commissioner, the outgoing uh, police commissioner who just resigned, you know, last week. This is John Katzmatidis. If you want to hear the full interview, go to WABCradio.com. This is the Katz Roundtable. We'll be right back. Telling it like it is, giving you both sides of the story with common sense thinking. It's the Cats Roundtable. With us today is the chairman of the New Jersey GOP, Bob Hugan, and they have a lot of seats coming up in New Jersey, and we just want to get the pulse of what's going on in New Jersey. There's so many important issues. Uh, Bob Hugan, uh, give us an update uh, for all New Jerseyites. Thanks so much, John. Here in New Jersey, we have the entire state Senate and the entire assembly up for election, 120 seats. And we have a fair uh, contest, a good, good map. It's a fair map. And we're doing great. The issues that really matter to New Jerseyans today are some of them are very similar to those that people affect people in, in Manhattan and other parts of New York City and New York State. Certainly safety and crime. We've seen an increase in carjackings and car thefts in all the suburban areas. It's really scary for your kids and your family. Right here in Summit, New Jersey, we had a house breaking, houses broken into 
a couple uh, weeks ago. So lots of stuff is going on from a safety point of view. But the top two issues in New Jersey throughout the state are education, the failure of the Murphy administration to allow parents to have an involvement in it, to try and jam down people's throats for kindergarten kids to learn subjects about sex education and issues that are inappropriate to be taught at that level and by that by people who really don't know what they're doing and let parents have a say in it. So education, the environment's another big issue in New Jersey. This offshore wind is killing whales and dolphins and disrupting the fishing, commercial, and recreational industries without really the kind of science behind the proof that it's going to provide a solution to our um, uh, electricity issues. So Now, now you're talking about the whales and the sharks. There's so many shark bites lately. You know, Long Island, they had five shark bites over the 4th of July weekend. Is that happening in New Jersey at all? Yeah, we, we've seen some in Atlantic City, <clears throat> South Jersey, and it's really a crazy thing that the, the people who control these issues about what we should fish for and what we shouldn't fish for, we have way too many sharks today. People, they're so protected. <clears throat> I was fishing yesterday, and there's a huge migration of uh, hammerhead sharks going on right now. That you can't catch anything else but but sharks is crazy, but yet they're they're doing other things that are destroying the commercial and, and recreational fishing industries. Wow. And I know I spoke to Governor Murphy, too, and a couple other people a few weeks ago, and the whales, it's got to be from those wind turbines that they're trying to create, and somehow it's affecting them. Oh, John, they're doing the seismic sounding with these, they're checking where they can drill these things, and these seismic sounding boats are, are causing all kinds of disruptions in the ocean. First time, a friend of mine uh, has a family that's involved in the scallop business, first time in 35 years, all the scallops came up dead. These the seismic sounding they're doing for this testing for this stuff is unbelievable. Wait till they actually do the real work to put these pilings in. I don't know if you saw Siemens stock, the German company. Their stock was down 36% because they, they made public the fact that the turbines for these windmills are not yet ready scientifically and technologically. And we're, we're going to jam that down on us all. We're going to give a tax break to these foreign companies to do this. It's going to raise the electricity bills for middle and lower income New Jerseyans by a thousand bucks a year because they're trying to foist on us a technology that we all want long term. We want renewable energy. But when it's not scientifically ready, it's stupid that what we're doing, it's hurting people, especially lower income people. And that's why they're running away from the Democratic Party and realizing Republicans are the people that care about working people today. So we've got a big race and we're happy as long as we keep the issues focused on New Jersey issues, New York area issues, congestion pricing is a big deal where it's viewed as a money grab from New York City and ripping off New Jersey commuters. As long as we keep the issues on state related issues, we're going to win. The federal issues, to be honest with you, uh, President Trump, who did a great job for so many great policies, very unpopular in New Jersey. As long as we keep the issues on New Jersey, we're going we're gonna to win in 23. And so we're pretty optimistic, a lot of work to do. But as long as we keep these issues in front of voters, education, safety, affordability, the environment, Republicans care about working people, we're going to make a big difference in November. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's what uh, all people in New Jersey or people in New York are interested in. Bob Hugan, thank you for coming on this Sunday morning, and thank you for your concerns. And we hope our cities and our states and our country survives, and God bless you. God bless you, and God bless America. With us today is Connecticut GOP leader and chairman Ben Proto. Tell us what's going on in Connecticut. Give us the feeling of 
which way people are going. We figured let's go up to Connecticut and find out what's going on there. Well, first, I think, as we mentioned off the air, we're, we're still going to have our wood fire and coal fire pizza here in, in Connecticut. So all you folks in New York, come down to New Haven and get your peppies and sallies and modern pizza because yours might be going away in New York. But uh, overall, I think the, the feeling in Connecticut is not much different than what we're seeing across the country. I think people are very, very concerned about the economy. They're very concerned about their jobs. They're worried about their retirement. Uh, we're seeing, you know, more and more parents become concerned about what's going on in their children's classrooms. Uh, and, and as a result, uh, I think, you know, Connecticut is, is not all that different than what we're seeing around the country. Uh, and I think that's going to come out to play in, in the elections is uh, here in Connecticut this year, we have our municipal elections. So we'll be voting for mayors and first selectmen's and board of educations and board of finance and, you know, planning and zoning commissions, things along those lines. Those are all our elections this year. And, and Republicans do well in those elections. We control 120 some odd towns out of 169 towns in Connecticut. Uh, and I think we'll increase those numbers this year. So I'm excited about where the Republican Party is. People in Connecticut are concerned. They're worried. They're scared about where they're going and what, where this country is going and whether they're going to wake up tomorrow morning and have a job. You know, John, when you see ESPN laying off 20 multimillionaire sportscasters because they're trying to control costs, I think that sends a message as to where the economy's at. I think right now in New York City, where I live, we're living under the law of the jungle. The strongest survive, and people are still scared. I spoke to the governor uh, a couple of days ago, and I told her that people are still scared to go in the subways. They're still scared to go out at night. How is the crime problem in Connecticut? You know, we're seeing, you know, more shootings uh, in our cities. Uh, you know, just a, a few weeks ago, as you know, the president was here in Connecticut at the University of Hartford on a gun violence conference. And I put out a press release. I said, I found it interesting that the president and Chris Murphy and, and Dick Blumenthal were at the University of Hartford uh, on the West Hartford side of the campus, where if they had just gone to the other side of the campus, they would have been in one of the most violent neighborhoods in the state of Connecticut, where children are being shot, boys and girls are being shot, and drive-by shootings. We're seeing more and more shootings there. They would have been better off standing on the street corner talking to the moms who, who are afraid to let their kids go outside and play because they might get shot. We're seeing that. We're, you know, we're, we're seeing, uh, again, the increase in, you know, auto crimes as we are across the country. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, I think a complete lack of respect for, you know, each other, you know, here uh, as we are, I think, across the country where people are very much more concerned, I think, about protecting themselves, understandably. Uh, and as a result, I think people are quicker to anger. Uh, and when you become quicker to anger, uh, you tend to be quicker to violence in particular. So it's an issue that we're going to have to deal with here in Connecticut. And I think we're going to deal with across the country. And give us the pulse. Are anybody talking about the presidential elections yet in Connecticut? A little bit. You know, we're, we're a very late primary. We tried to move our primary up this year. Uh, unfortunately, we weren't able to get the bill through the, the state Senate. Uh, so we're at the end of April. But you're beginning to see people who are, you know, interested in in uh, various candidates. We had Nikki Haley 
who was our speaker at our uh, annual Bush dinner at the end of May. She did a great job for us, was very well received, very well liked. You know, we have some conversations with Senator Scott coming up, Connecticut. Vivek Ramswamy was here in Greenwich a couple of weeks ago for an event in Greenwich. So we're beginning to see more presidential candidates come to Connecticut. Uh, I had dinner with Governor Hutchinson about a year ago uh, when he was here visiting uh, on some business for Arkansas at the time, but we had a conversation about the the presidency in 2024. So uh, we're seeing more people become more interested in various candidates. Obviously, uh, Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis have uh, a lot of followers here in Connecticut. So I think it's going to be an interesting primary season as we move forward. We're still hopeful that we might get a special session from the legislature to be able to move our primary up and make Connecticut a bit more relevant in the presidential primary. Did you win or lose any congressional seats during the last redistricting? Uh, we did not. We we had five going in. Uh, we still have five. Uh, we ran a very, very close congressional race in CD5 with George Logan against Congresswoman Johanna Hayes. George Logan, unfortunately, came up short by literally 0.7%. Uh, it was about 1,900 total votes uh, out of over almost just under 300,000 that were cast in that district. And uh, I think we're in a very good place coming into 2024 to be able to take that seat back in 2024. And I think to be very competitive in at least congressional, uh, the second congressional district in eastern Connecticut. We got a minute left. Anything else you want to tell uh, the American people? Just coming out off the 4th of July holiday, John, and and I'm a big believer in America. I know like you are. I believe in our country. I'm sitting here, you know, looking out my window over Main Street in Middletown, Connecticut, and, and every, you know, light post has an American flag flying from it. Uh, believe in America. Believe in the greatness of America. Believe that, you know, if you work hard, if you believe in yourself, if you believe in your country and your family, you know, you can make things happen here. I, I truly believe that, you know, America is still the greatest country in the world. I know there are people who are going to disagree with me in that, and I tell you, you're wrong. I do believe that, you know, we have we have far more to offer in this country to anyone who wants to work hard and get there. So believe in our country, believe in America, believe in our government. It does work, and, and let's go out, and sometimes you got to change the government to make it work better, and that's what we have to do in 2024 is we've got to change the government, we've got to change who's running the government and running our, our society and that'll get us back on track. Well, thank you, Ben Proto, GOP chairman of Connecticut. Thank you for your pulse on what's going on, and we'll catch up with you again real soon. Look forward to talking to you soon, John. Thank you very much for having me on the show. With us today is a longtime friend. We know each other for a long time since he was a kid. Constantine Maroulis, a singer, an actor. Constantine, fill us in. What are you doing these days? Well, John, thank you so much for having me. You know, I've had the pleasure of developing a new musical uh, bound for Broadway called Rock and Roll Man. It's about the birth of rock and roll during segregation, a great disruptor who ended up working at WABC in his last days, Alan Freed. He coined the phrase rock and roll. He played black artists on the radio um, and, and produced desegregated concerts with Chuck Berry and and um, Jerry Lee Lewis, Laverne Baker. Um, in fact, my mom used to attend some of the rock and roll concerts in the early 50s at the Brooklyn Paramount. So we are uh, running right now in New York in the heart of Broadway, Rock and Roll Man, the musical. It's a great 50s piece. It's got all the great songs that Cousin Brucie plays and some original material as well. And I don't think you'd recognize me in the show. I'm completely transformed into a 1950s guy. Short hair, 
you know, cool suits and everything. You've always had long hair since I've known you. Uh, and where is it playing in New York? It's playing at New World Stages, just off Broadway, right in the heart of uh, Manhattan, West 50th Street. It's actually the theater I began Rock of Ages in many years ago. And then we took it to Broadway and all over the world and a movie with Tom Cruise. So I think we have big plans for the show and we just might have some of that magic dust as well. It's almost similarly titled, but it's very different. It's Rock and Roll Man the musical. Well, you know I love music. I look forward to coming and seeing the show because music is just, I think it makes your mind feel good. It makes your body feel good. And I look forward to seeing you. And when does it open? We are open now. We have rave reviews. We're packing the theater. We got great air conditioning. <laughs> I've been telling everyone that because of the way the theater is. Is there a, a website? Yeah, rock and roll man, the musical.com. All the great 50 songs you love from Chuck Berry and Little Richard, all featured in the show, and great dancing. Joey Pantoliano, film icon, of course. Joey Pants is in the show, co starring with me, and he's wonderful. Well, Constantine Maroulis, thank you for the update, and I look forward to seeing you. We haven't seen each other in a while, and God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you, John. Have a great summer, and I'll see you at the theater. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Here's the man who is New York, exploring the truth, telling both sides with common sense thinking. Here's John Katsimatidis on Talk Radio 77 WABC. This is the Cats Roundtable. With us today is Governor Kathy Hochul, and so many things are happening in New York, uh, New York State, New York City, and we're glad she's joining us on a Sunday morning to give us an update. Governor Hochul, first of all, this week you had a great week with so many good amount of great announcements, money being spent by the MTA to extend the subway, money being spent to create the tunnel underneath the Hudson River, and we're talking about billions and billions and billions, and that should create some jobs. Can you fill in the American people or New Yorkers uh, what's going on in this? Well, John, thank you for the opportunity back again on your show and talk about these issues. Yes, it, my opinion, it is all about the job creation. I remember growing up in western New York at a time when we couldn't find jobs anywhere. My entire family had to move elsewhere because they were not good-paying jobs. Today, it's a different dynamic. I'm impatient, and I'm working closely with the Biden administration and Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to bring the money to New York to do these major investments like the, like the Second Avenue subway. This has been talked about forever. We're finally getting it going. The MTA announced plans to go forward with a new contract, and that's going to be a way to connect East Harlem with the rest of the city. It's going to help tens of thousands of riders in a place where people don't have cars. It's going to come up, cut commute times. But the Gateway Tunnel, John, since it was compromised by Hurricane Sandy a decade ago, we've been on borrowed time. And to have what is the largest transit grant in U.S. history coming to New York because of the efforts of our federal leaders and what the arrangement I worked out with New Jersey, our governor of New Jersey and myself, we all had to come together in a way that is unprecedented to say, this is too important. We're going to get it done. And you're absolutely right, John. It is about the jobs that are going to flow for decades to come. Understood. I mean, those are, how many jobs do you think? Uh, I mean, it's like $15 billion between the two projects. Yeah. How many jobs do you think it'll create? No, 
you know, th- literally thousands of jobs. And these are going to be long-term jobs. It's going to take some time to build both. But these are the investments that our city has been waiting for. And the pandemic hit us hard, but we cannot use that as an excuse on why we're not investing in our infrastructure, because this is the greatest city on earth, and it deserves to have the best, most reliable infrastructure. And that's another reason why, John, even the week before, we said we're moving forward with the plans to redo Penn Station. Penn Station, it is New York, let's just put it this way, deserves a better, more welcoming, brighter experience than people have right now when they come through Penn Station. So I have made that a priority. I've detached it from all the other issues that have made it uh, languish for so many years, and I'm impatient, and we're moving ahead with Penn Station as well. So these are all great developments to show the confidence that I have and the people have in the city of New York and its future. Now, then you got another major project, Penn, Penn Station. Anything else in the wind? Well, yes, yes. We have many more projects. We're continuing our investments out in Long Island and heading up Metro North. We're going to be expanding there as well. And, uh, and also even upstate, we have a lot of investments in repairing cities that were divided by infrastructure for decades. Buffalo, Syracuse, Albany, the Bronx even. We're, we're making up for a lot of lost time when neighborhoods were split by infrastructure projects that, that really had no made no sense at the time and we're investing the money to fix those now so so i'm excited about this as well as just the bread and butter filling the potholes on long island if you go back two years ago i said one of my objectives is to get rid of all these damn potholes that we have throughout long island and the hudson valley and we are making progress so these are just the quality of life issues that people care about you just fix the roads keep the streets safe just worry about myself and my family, and then that's what we're doing, focusing on this in state government. So it's, it's a good time for New York. You know, we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, we have Governor Murphy in New Jersey. I talked to him last week, and he was thinking of suing because of the congestion pricing law. And that is going to hurt certain parts of our city, especially Manhattan, which is suffering. Have you talked to Governor Murphy at all, and what are your thoughts on that? Yes, and, I, and Governor Murphy and I are great friends, and I'll be, he's hosting the National Governor's Meeting in Atlantic City just in a couple of days, and I, I sat with him at Dick Ravitch's funeral a few days ago, and what a, a loss of a giant we had in Dick Ravitch. So, no, we've talked about it, and I understand his position, but when you look at the real number of New Jersey residents affected, over 80% of New Jersey residents come to New York City for their jobs by public transit. So they want us to invest, and we can't invest in the infrastructure and keeping the capital programs on track without new sources of funding. So from their perspective, yes, there'll be some people affected. We have not determined the pricing yet. That's still to be decided by the Traffic Mobility Review Board. But this is going to be so beneficial for Manhattan, which is literally, John, paralyzed. I walk the streets of New York all the time. I'm constantly going up and down across the borough. And it is great to see the people back. It is great to see the tourists. It's great to see uh, the commuters who are finding their way to their jobs. It feels so alive again, but it is also so congested that people can't move. A bus takes forever to be able to get down the street. Cars are not moving. Delivery trucks are not making. And worst of all, emergency vehicles. When your family, your loved one has a heart attack and that ambulance can't get to them because they're jammed in traffic, We're going to be a model for the rest of the nation. We're going to get it right here. We're going to show people that we can do something good for the environment. We're going to do something good for public safety. 
They're going to do something good for the people who live here and also be generating the revenue so I have the money years from now to make investments. And people say, we're glad she did that because otherwise our infrastructure would have continued to deteriorate. And I'm not going to let that happen. Now, we talked a few days ago, and, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The ugly, how do we make New York safer? And I understand that your hands are tied because the state Senate has put their foot down. The state assembly has put their foot down. What can the average New Yorker do? I mean, our stores used to be open to midnight. The Gristini stores, the D'Agostino stores. People can't walk around at night. They're scared. What can we do to make it even safer? Well, John, I I understand that, and this is a real concern that people have had. And things really got worse after the pandemic. I don't know the causation necessarily, what they had to do with the pandemic, but it is real. But if you look at the statistics on the serious crimes that are now plunging, I mean, down 25 percent murders and shootings, that's really important for people to have that overall sense of safety. But what you're talking about is something that I addressed in changing the bail laws. Back in 2018, before I became governor, the laws were changed, 2019, to remove the discretion of judges for many serious crimes and repeat offenders to say that you don't even have the option to consider whether you're going to hold someone and detain them until their trial or to have a bail that fits the crime. So I had to work through the last session of the legislature and finally this time I held the budget up an entire month. It was a month late, and I was criticized for that, John. But I also said I'm not leaving here. I was applauding you. The bail Thank you. Thank you. I was applauding uh, you. <laughs> and we got it done. And now here's what has to happen, John. The judges now have to look at the power that then has been returned to them. Look at whether this is someone who has been a repeat offender causing harm where there has been harm before. We put new standards. Look at past record. Was there violence? Was there an order of protection violence? Look at the record of the person and don't just let them back out on the streets. My gosh, we have an opportunity here just to restore that sense of security that every single New Yorker deserves. And I'll be doing a press event with the mayor very soon. We work closely on this. We also worked hard last fall and I brought state money for the first time ever, helping pay for law enforcement policing in the subway. And when people hear they're in a train and they hear the words, there's a police officer on the platform if you need help, I'm telling you that is a deterrent and makes people feel more at ease. And I'm hearing that all over New York, people saying, I feel better on the subway now because we know there's law enforcement there keeping an eye on things. So we're not done yet by any stretch of the imagination. But it is nowhere what it had been before. And for people who say they're going to leave our state because it's not safe, I'm going to say my next question. Tell me the city you're going to, and I'll guarantee, I can guarantee we have a better, a safer crime rate than you have in those other cities. Miami, Washington, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, even Salt Lake City and Austin. We are better off. But I'm not going to say that statistics should make people feel better. Let us keep doing our job and working hard to make sure that people stop committing these crimes and we can get New York back to the way it was before. Governor, I am still concerned about the safety, and I'm not going to lie to you. I am concerned about the safety, and and people are concerned. My last question— And I don't don't want you to think I'm not concerned as well, and that is why I am laser-focused on people. Some of the people around you might not be telling you the fear that people are having. 
I don't, I don't need anyone but, to tell me, John, because I know it and I see it. I, I take yeah. the subways. I walk the streets. It is real. It is real. I'm not saying it's not real. And that is why I am so committed to changing that and making people not just feel safer, but actually be safer. Last question. With a lot of people moving out, I understand the number was like 484,000. Uh, we had t- uh, Tom DiNapoli, the controller, on. The budget is down in collections. What do you have to do to deal with the budget being down if they're already passing a budget? And I'm, I know you're busy signing bills every day. Well, here's what I did last year, my first year as governor, and again this year. When I became governor in August of 2021, our state only had 4% in reserves. Now, I had worked on 14 municipal budgets as a local official. We always made sure we had 15% set aside for that rainy day. I knew we could not survive an economic downturn if there's a recession or any loss in revenues coming from our high net worth taxpayers or Wall Street takes a dip. So I worked hard last year and this year, despite strong pressure to spend all the surplus money, I said, no, this is where we're going to put it in the bank. So therefore, we have significant, significant reserves, upwards of 17%. So that is what I'm doing is just bolstering our, bolstering our resources and our finances. So if, in fact, the decline in revenues continues, and I do believe we'll be able to stop it, but right now it has been down, if we... If we run into a situation where we're lo- the loss is significant, I don't want to have to turn to New Yorkers and say we're going to tax you more. I want to tax them less. I'm going to I tax them less. And now, now I'm in a better position because I took the effort working with our budget department to stash the money away, knowing that it is never always going to be a sunny day. I'm preparing for the worst. Governor Hochul, I pray for New York. I pray for our city. I pray for our state. We both love it. And I'd rather be singing a song with you, Come On Back. And I hope we can sing that song together. I'm sure we will, John. Great talking to you. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for being with us for the Cats Roundtable Local Edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.